0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text this Lord's Day as it's found in Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. Daniel 10. 1 through 9. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the, tw- and in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekal, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with the fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like the burl, <clears throat> and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision. And there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. In the book of Daniel, we see the Lord revealing Jesus as prophet in declaring what is to come, revealing Jesus as priest in saving and making intercession for his people, and as king in ruling over the nations. For example, in Daniel chapter 5, you remember at this profane feast of Belshazzar, it was, I believe, Jesus whose hand appeared that writes the king's judgment upon the wall. Uh, That was, again, Jesus as prophet. In Daniel 7, Belshazzar's dream of the four beasts, which represent four empires. And yet in that vision, Daniel sees one come, who is the Messiah, the Son of Man, to whom is given the rule. Over all nations to reign as king forever and ever. And so we see in that particular instance Jesus being declared to be the king. And then in Daniel 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which we just completed, Jesus is revealed as Messiah the Prince who shall accomplish redemption for his people. He is revealed in Daniel 9 to be both a king and a priest. And here in Daniel chapter 10, Jesus appears in a vision to Daniel, clothed as our great high priest and as a king who saves his people from their sins, who saves his people from their enemies. I believe the Lord here would have us to see Jesus, by faith, in the pages of Scripture, in the book of Daniel, to find Jesus glorified throughout the Old Testament, but particularly as we have worked our way through the book of Daniel to see the glory of Jesus. But we're also to see the glory of Jesus not only in the pages of Scripture, but by faith every day we are to see the glory of Jesus which we have learned from the pages of Scripture. But we are to see and to walk before him, before his glory every day. To the degree, dear ones, that we see by faith the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever we face, whatever blessings, whatever trials that we face, to that same degree, We will be more than conquerors to the degree that we do not see the glory of Christ every day. When that fades into the background, to that degree, I submit to you, we will more likely fall into discouragement and into despair and hopelessness. If we would have hope, dear ones, about now and the future, if we would have hope for this world, for the nations of this world, for the church of Jesus Christ, for our families, for our own individual lives, then we must learn to see the glory of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king every day. Not just when we come together on the Lord's Day, but every day. It is only as we see the glory of Christ as prophet, priest, and king that we will also see ourselves as more than conquerors through Christ, who loved us. Seeing Jesus as prophet, priest, and king every day in what we faced, and whatever it may be that we face, seeing him not as a distant stranger. This is not a secret that is hidden in the pages of Scripture. This is something that is revealed in scripture and we do not practice it uh, to our own hurt that is what paul means in philippians 121 for to me to live is christ if we would have again in our lives that overcoming faith it must be because we behold the Lord Jesus by faith in all of his glory as prophet, priest, and king. Not once in a while, but that we behold him as such, even every day. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. First of all, Daniel's use of God's means of grace in Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Second main point, the glorious vision of the Lord Jesus in Daniel 10, verses 4 through 6. And the third main point, Daniel's reaction to this vision in Daniel 10, verses 7 through 9. Our first main point, Daniel's use of God's means of grace in verses 1 through 3. The year of this uh, final recorded vision or revelation to Daniel is given to us here in the first three verses. It was in the first year of Cyrus that the Jews were... Were set free to return to rebuild the temple that was in 537 to 538 now it's in the third year and the time is stated in the third year Cyrus. so it's two years after the jews were set free to return and to rebuild the temple so approximately 535 or 536 bc daniel at this point in time is about 84 years old if we you know judge from the time that he was taken into captivity in 605 bc that he was about 15 years old that's the first deportation from jerusalem to babylon and and then move to this particular point that would make him about 84 years old in daniel 121 you remember perhaps uh and if not, you can turn with me there. But in Daniel one twenty one, it says, "And Daniel continued even into the first year of King Cyrus." So, if that's the case, what what is it here that we find in the third year of Cyrus? Well, let me suggest that probably it means in Daniel one twenty one that Daniel continued in his official capacity, uh, civil capacity. Uh, until the first year of Cyrus. And then perhaps afterward, he then retired from his civil capacity, official capacity, and uh, was no longer then, by this time, in the third year of Cyrus, serving in any official capacity uh, to Cyrus, uh, king of Persia. Daniel prefaces uh, the vision that is about that is about to be revealed unto him. He prefaces the vision with a general statement. uh, Here, first of all, in verses two through three. This is, we'll talk about that general statement in a moment, but this is the last recorded. Vision or revelation given to daniel uh, this this uh, uh, recorded vision uh, begins in Daniel chapter ten this chapter that we're considering today uh, the same vision uh, continues in Daniel chapter eleven and it ends in Daniel chapter twelve so uh, Daniel Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all this same last recorded vision uh, to Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel here introduces uh, the vision in, uh, in verse 1 uh, in uh, the third person introduces himself in the third person Uh, he says uh, concerning this that a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar this is a more formal way um, rather than a personal way of revealing who the author of this uh, writing is and to whom the vision was given but uh, again uh, he does so in order to state that basically he's the same Daniel to whom Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians gave the name Belteshazzar. Uh, this is not a different Daniel. This is the same Daniel that was introduced in Daniel chapter one, all the way through the book of Daniel. So basically, it's it's connecting of the whole book, as having the same human author. The vision given to Daniel, he makes clear, uh, was was true. He says it was true. In other words, it was not a figment of his imagination. And he also says that it, this vision was concerning the time Appointed or the time appointed was long. Actually, I think whereas uh, our English version does state, but the time appointed was long, it would be better translated, but the warfare was great. Referring to the extended time of warfare that is to be found actually in Daniel chapter 11, which we'll get to eventually. In that chapter, it's it's one war after the other, one battle, as it were, the exchange of power from one kingdom to the next throughout the whole chapter, and so again the vision pertains to an extended period or time of warfare that was to, uh, to was to come. Uh, that particular word. That is translated the time appointed there is a noun in it, and it is used uh, throughout the Old Testament many times for a war, for battle, for the hosts, uh, for warfare. And so that's probably uh, a better interpretation than the one that we actually find in our English text here. We find, in beginning in verse two, that Daniel flees to the mercy of God uh, that is found in Jesus Christ for help by means of fasting. Fasting isn't a, a subject that we generally spend much time talking about, but when it does come up, I think that we need to spend a little time talking about fasting because it is a means of grace that God has given to us. It is not an ordinary means of grace. It is something that we use uh, in extraordinary uh, situations. But nevertheless, it is a means of grace that we should uh, that we should be familiar with. Notice in verse 2, he now switches to the more personal uh First person, rather than third person, in verse 1, now first person, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. And then he says in verse 3, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So Daniel explains how He fasted for a period of 21 full days here, three full weeks. He also explains that this was not a a full fast from all food. As we often think of a fast as being uh, abstaining from, from all food, this was a partial fast. He abstained from, as it says, pleasant bread, flesh, wine. Uh, he did not anoint himself, he, didn't en- he did not enjoy the, the dainties, as it were, the things that he particularly uh, loved and uh, to eat. Uh, he avoided those things and ate more ordinary foods simply to uh, sustain his body during this time of fast. So he avoided certain foods, but he didn't avoid all foods. He was eating, but it was, again, a, 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 a diet or a menu that was, was quite different than what he was ordinarily accustomed to. <clears throat> it also says that uh, he also abstained from <clears throat> ordinary personal grooming, which was anointing, that... Uh, in that culture and in the time of Christ, uh, in ancient culture, uh, perfumed uh, oil was used to anoint for refreshment, uh, to smell, uh, uh, you know, to cover body odor. It's like a deodorant uh, as well. But it was a time of, of refreshment. Uh, but he avoided that as well. Now, interesting, what does Jesus say in Matthew 6? He says, when you fast, uh, he says, don't avoid anointing yourself. He says, anoint yourself. What is the difference uh, between what Daniel did and what Jesus says to do? Well, I, I would submit that in the case of Daniel, that Daniel, as I think we'll see, uh, was not amongst the people. Uh, he was isolated. I think he had here, it mentions... Uh, a few men with him, probably a uh, bodyguard or escorts uh, to, to protect him. But it appears that he had left Babylon, we'll see in a moment, and he was, which is uh, the Euphrates runs through the river, Euphrates runs through Babylon, but he was near the river Hedekal, which is the Tigris at this time. And so he was not among the multitudes, in that particular case, Jesus says, um, anoint yourself. Don't let it appear that uh, you are going through a time of fasting uh, so as to draw attention to yourself. But here is Daniel. He's not among the multitudes. It appears he's by, pretty much by himself. And he, uh, in order to, uh, to abstain from his ordinary pleasures he abstains from anointing himself, as well as the food, the drink as well, the wine, he avoids that as well. <clears throat> what is biblical fasting? Just uh, Let us spend just a, a few moments uh, talking about biblical fasting so that we have, again, a, a good overview of what biblical fasting is before moving on to the vision of Jesus Christ that is given to Daniel. Well biblical fasting is it's an ordinance of God wherein the natural appetite for food, whether completely or partially, is denied to the body in order to that in order that we might turn our attention from ourselves Turn our attention to our greater need than even our natural appetites. And turn our attention to our spiritual appetite. To the Lord our God. To turn from physical hungering to a spiritual hungering to be fed by our merciful and gracious God. Jesus said in the temptation, one of the temptations from Satan, in Matthew 4:4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Also, biblical fasting is, is humbling ourselves before God in order that we might exalt him. We are humbled, but we exalt him. Uh, exalt him to do his will, rather than our own will. It is to say that some situation in our life or in the life of others or some event in the church or in the nation or in the world is of such consequence that we need to stop our ordinary business and humble ourselves before our God to plead for his help biblical fasting uh, is ordained by God and was practiced uh, by God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For example in Joel chapter 2 verses 12 through 13 we read therefore also now saith the Lord turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Why turn unto him? By way of fasting, here is the reason. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth them of the evil. We also see in the New Testament many other examples that we could cite from the Old Testament, but that one is, I think, a classic example, Joel 2. But in the New Testament, uh, Jesus assumes that that we will be fasting. He says, when ye fast in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6. He does not say, uh, if you happen to fast, but when you fast. We see in Acts 14, 23 that there was a time of fasting ordained when elders were ordained. It says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Biblical fasting is not a superstitious uh, or mechanical way in order to manipulate the Lord, in order to get what we want from him. God does not promise that if we fast, if we fast, he will automatically grant us whatever it is that we have sought him for. Fasting, dear ones, is not bargaining with God. In other words, if I fast, he will give me what I seek. It's not that way at all. Rather, it is taking a step beyond prayer. We are to pray, but there are times in which we are to fast. It is taking a step beyond prayer, though never separated from fervent prayer, to acknowledge that we are a needy people. And we show that neediness by going either completely or partially without food and and our, and our bodies begin to tell us we are a needy people as we feel the pangs of hunger. You remember in Mark chapter 9 when the disciples could not cast out the, demons, uh, the demon out of that boy uh, whose father had brought the boy to the the lord jesus jesus peter james and john were on the mount of transfiguration and came down afterwards and this father approached him and said uh, i have brought him but the disciples could not cast the demon out and jesus proceeds to cast the demon out and they asked jesus why couldn't we do so and jesus says these come out by prayer and fasting in other words the The apostles seem to have been operating merely upon the fact that they had the gift that God had given, Christ had given to them uh, to subdue demons. And they were simply operating on the fact that they had this gift, but they were not turning unto the Lord, the giver of the gift, to depend upon him. Uh, They were not uh, seeking the Lord they had basically put their gift on automatic pilot and were just pressing forward it would seem rather than recognizing this is a powerful demon uh that possessed this boy and uh, so again we we learn that that prayer is to continue but we in certain circumstances and situations uh we are to resort to fasting as well whether whether individually, as individuals to fast, whether it's families, individual families, fast concerning a particular need, the church, we've had church-wide fasts uh, on various occasions, and uh, national fasts. Uh, there There are times when a godly nation would indeed, as Israel of old, and those nations That covenanted with God, our our forefathers did call for national fasts to humble themselves before the living God. Biblical fasting, dear ones, is not meritorious. It's not a way either to uh, earn God's favor. Rather, fasting, rather than earning God's favor, reveals our own weaknesses. Fasting reveals our own sin. Fasting reveals our need of Christ and of his mercy and of his forgiveness for our sin. Now, we're not specifically told here why Daniel was fasting. But the Jews, we know historically, had recently returned to Jerusalem under the edict of cyrus to rebuild the temple and we know that it was not long after they returned that they began to face all manner of opposition by way of discouragement from within the ranks of god's people becoming distracted and preoccupied uh, with building their own homes and not completing the temple, and also by way of adversaries in the land who sought to prevent and delay and to hinder the rebuilding of the temple. In Ezra chapter 4, we see that. And so it may have been due to those historical events that that uh, Daniel was Praying and fasting in this particular situation for 21 days uh, beside the river Hedekel, the Tigris. So, this was not necessarily a personal crisis that Daniel himself was going through, that he was himself experiencing, but it was a crisis, it would appear, for God's people and what they were experiencing, and he felt it very personally. He wasn't personally going through that. However, his brethren back in Jerusalem were going through that. And if this was the reason for his fast, then he was fasting on their behalf. In other words, his love for his brethren compelled him to fasting when there was an urgent and a great need that they were facing. And we will, dear ones, not only fast at times for the needs in our own lives, but we will at times fast for the the needs that we find in the lives of our brethren. We will fast personally at times for the peace, the purity, and the unity of Christ's church we will fast for the reformation of Christ and the families of Jesus Christ and the church of Christ and for our nation. The second main point is the glorious vision of the Lord Jesus in Daniel chapter 10 and to verses 4 through 6. First of all, in these verses, note the day and the location of this vision. Uh, the date of this, we already know that this is in the third year of Cyrus in his reign. But we also have a further indication as to the time of this vision and the time which Daniel was fasting. It says that this occurred, this vision appeared to Daniel on the 24th day of the first month, according to the Jewish calendar. The Lord appointed, interestingly, and kind of reading between the lines here, but I want to share something that appeared to me as I was uh, looking at this passage. What, what, what event occurs in the first month and before the twenty-fourth day, the Passover. The the Passover was celebrated, beginning on the fourteenth day of the first month. Leviticus twenty-three five says, "In the fourteenth day of the first month, at even, is the Lord's Passover." <clears throat> the Passover then would have fallen within the time of Daniel's fast, would it not? If Daniel's fast continues until the 24th day, then that would have included the Passover and then the seven days following the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so eight days, the 14th to the 22nd day, and this is now the 24th day, we're told. What's interesting, I find here, is that there's no mention of Daniel celebrating the Passover. Now, you might say, well, that's, that doesn't really mean anything necessarily. Well, add to that that there is no mention of the celebration of Passover uh, at all during the time of captivity. People's, God's people being in captivity during the time that the temple is in desolation. There is no indication that God's people celebrated the Passover. For the sacrificial lamb could not be offered anywhere but where the Lord appointed, and that was at the temple. According to Deuteronomy 16, verses 5 through 6, we read, God says, Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates, Which the Lord thy God giveth thee, but at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name in. There thou shalt sacrifice the Passover at even, at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. But immediately, when the Jews are restored to their land, and the temple is rebuilt, what do they do? One of the first things they do is to celebrate the Passover in Ezra 6:19. In other words, the Passover and the temple stand or fall together. And yet, in modern Judaism, the Passover continues to be celebrated right? Uh, The modern Jews continue to celebrate the Passover when God's people did not celebrate the Passover, when the temple was destroyed, when there was no temple, when they couldn't offer the sacrificial lamb. And yet modern Jews continue to celebrate. And interestingly, they don't celebrate the Passover on the day appointed, the 14th day of the first month. They celebrate the Passover on the 15th day of the first month and they don't follow uh, the menu that God prescribed in his, in his law they've added all manner of delicacies uh, to their Passover Seder meal I simply point that out to say and, and likewise Messianic Jews follow the same pattern That's simply to say again that to show and demonstrate how far uh, modern Judaism uh, has departed from the Torah, from the Old Testament scriptures, and they are more ruled by the Talmud, the interpretation of the Torah by their rabbis, than they are by the Torah itself, by the law of God. Now, we do not believe that the Passover should be celebrated uh, at all. We do not believe that God is going to approve of any rebuilt temple in the future. God has finished with that in Jesus Christ. Jesus, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is our Passover lamb. But it's simply to, again, illustrate how far even those who claim to be Jews have departed from an added all manner of, of changes to what God had prescribed in his law. The location where Daniel received this vision was, we read, beside the great river, which is Hedekal. As I said, that is the Tigris River. I think that this is indicative, the fact that he was, Daniel was not uh, in Babylon along the Euphrates, but he's uh, near um, the Tigris River. I think that that fits in very well with what I said earlier, that two years before, uh, in the first year of Cyrus was his last year as uh, in official civil capacity and that he retired. Daniel retired in the first year. And so that now two years later, he's no longer in Babylon. He's no longer there around the Euphrates. Now he is near the Tigris River. Um, that appears again just uh, uh, to be something that fits in with that particular scenario that that I mentioned. Furthermore, it's interesting. If God's people were celebrating the Passover, why was Daniel not with God's people back in Babylon if they were celebrating the Passover? It doesn't mention that he celebrated it, but I submit to you it doesn't mention that they were celebrating it either. And the fact that he was not in Babylon if they were celebrating it with God's people, I think is very telling, Um, which, again, I have given a reason why I think that is the case. So we come now to the vision uh, revealing the glory of Jesus Christ in verses uh, 5 and 6. And I'm going to read these verses, um, not just... uh, comment on them, but I'm going to read them. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with the fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words were like the voice of a multitude. <clears throat> as we begin this section, we're immediately confronted with the, um, with the fact that there are differing positions and views as to who this glorious person was in this vision. There are those who believe that uh, this glorious person is uh, Gabriel. Uh, Others believe that it's another important angel that is not named. Uh, And then there are those who believe it's the Lord Jesus. Um, I'm not uh, ashamed to say I take the the latter position, that this is the Lord Jesus that is revealed here. I I think if we look back, uh, we've already seen Gabriel in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. We've already seen uh, Gabriel uh appearing to daniel uh, and uh, in all of those previous appearances too, in daniel 8 verses 15 through 17 and daniel 9 21 in both those appearances there's no description like this uh of gabriel at all uh he simply appears it says uh, uh, uh that he appears and uh he touches Daniel, as it says here. Uh, and I'll get to that in verse 10. Uh, because I think, in the beginning in verse 10, we ha- do have uh, an angel touching Daniel. And I believe that angel is Gabriel. Uh, and I think that the vision, however, and this person revealed in this vision. Uh, is the Lord Jesus, as I said, Daniel never or Gabriel never appears to Daniel, nor in any other place is Gabriel ever given such a, de- a description, nor is any other angel given such a description as, as we find here in Daniel chapter ten. Um, when Gabriel appears to Zacharias in Luke 1 11 and following, um, uh, in all of these occurrences. Uh, the people that behold Gabriel certainly are in fear uh, at uh, such a, a bright, glorious uh, personage that it, that has appeared to them. But there's not this description given uh, that we find in this vision. Likewise, uh, Gabriel appears to Mary in Luke one twenty six, and the same thing uh, says that she was greatly troubled when she saw him. Uh, but again, there's not this description that we find here in Daniel 10, verses 5 through 6. There's one objection raised against this person in the vision being the Lord Jesus. And that is that it's claimed that, that whoever this is in the vision appealed for help from Michael the archangel in verse 13, Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days but lo Michael one of the chief princes came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And so uh, this it is claimed that that this would mean that Lord Jesus was impotent or not powerful enough if this If this uh, refers to Jesus Christ, that he was not powerful enough, he needed the help of Michael uh, to assist him. Before before, um, responding to that, let me take you to the New Testament, where this same likeness is very clearly in Revelation 1, 13 through 15, is Jesus Christ. Notice what it says there, this revelation, this vision that John receives, Apostle John. And in, <clears throat> and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Uh, again, the parallel between those two passages should be obvious uh, to, to anyone. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, there are those who gainsay say uh, that this in Daniel 10 is not the Lord Jesus, but is Gabriel or another angel. And uh, again, back to the objection. Who is it in verse 13 that is speaking um, and calling and mentions that uh, Michael came and helped him? Well, I do believe it's Gabriel uh, who is talking and saying it. And when does Gabriel come upon the scene? He's not the one in the vision, but he is the one who after the vision in verse 10 touches. It says, and behold, an hand touched me. It doesn't say it was the hand uh, of of the one in the vision, a vision is not something that is sensible. It's something that one sees, but uh, one in a vision can't literally touch a body. Uh, It's a vision. And so this in verse 10, though, speaks of one touching Daniel. And so I I submit to you that, that the vision is of Jesus Christ, but in verse 10, what we find there is Gabriel appearing once again as he appeared to Daniel on these two previous occasions, in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 9. And in both cases, it says Gabriel touched Daniel. And so again, in the th- this third occasion, he touches Daniel. And so it's Gabriel then, beginning with verse 10, that, who is the interpreting angel for Daniel to interpret the vision that God gives uh, uh, to Daniel to give him understanding It's Gabriel that does that, just as Gabriel did on these previous occasions. He was the interpreting angel in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 9, and he's the interpreting angel here in Daniel 10. He's the one who says that Michael came alongside to help him, not Jesus Christ. Jesus is the person in the vision, not the one who touched Daniel. So there is a break at that particular point. And so, in this vision of the Lord Jesus that Daniel beheld, Jesus is clothed in royal priestly garments. Uh, Jesus, in this vision, is revealed as our royal priest who alone brings us to God through his sacrifice and through his intercession. He is alone the mediator between God and man. There is no other mediator. Mary, the saints, angels, none are mediators between God and man. None are intercessors except the only one who intercedes for us is at the right hand of God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice again what it says concerning this person uh, it says it was a certain man so the image uh, is one of a man uh, in the vision it says he was clothed in linen uh, linen is, is white it's white and symbolizes the righteousness of Christ's life in fulfilling all righteousness for his people uh, it was his love for his people that sent him uh, to this world That clothed him in that that priestly, that high priestly garment, to to go to the cross for his people out of love. He became our great intercessor to uh, to intercede for us. It also says that he has in this vision a golden girdle. This speaks the fact that it's golden. uh, It speaks of how costly the work of Jesus Christ is. gird up your loins is a very familiar phrase that we find uh, in the scripture both the old and new testament Uh, because they had robes and to not have like a girdle something around them would uh, cause them not to be very efficient in their work they'd be tripping over their their robe but to bind up to have a girdle around them to bind up their loins uh, was to be able to work and to work efficiently, and so the girdle that Jesus is wearing speaks of his work that he is, uh, he is girded up at his loins as it were to do the work to fulfill the will that God has given to him, and the fact that it 's gold says that that work is is precious it 's costly it 's not something uh, that uh, uh, is cost us. It's free to us. His work is free to us. He freely gives to us the work that he's accomplished for us, but it's extremely costly and precious to him who fulfilled all righteousness for us. Nothing can be added to the work of Jesus Christ. It says that he has a body like burl. Literally, the word burl is not actually found in the text, a Hebrew text. is literally like Tarshish, uh, which is a place. Um, and uh, remember that uh, Jonah sought to flee to Tarshish uh, on, a, on a boat uh, to escape the Lord. Well, that was in s- southern Spain, Tarshish. And they were known for, pa- for particular stones, uh, Tarshish stones. And so his body was like a Tarshish stone. Which was a transparent type of a stone, uh, and uh, as it was transparent, light, as it came through that stone, would be reflected with great glory, a glory, as it relates to Jesus Christ. John speaks of in John 1:14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. His resplendent glory, his brilliance of his glory, and what he said, and what he did, the miracles, and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension. We beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus is. Daniel saw in a vision that glory. John, the apostle, saw it in reality. Can you imagine the sea? Behold, not just in vision, but the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he ministered here upon the earth to behold his glory. Dear ones, we can't have the glory of Christ. We can only reflect the glory of Christ. Christ's glory is infinite, infinitely glorious. And we, as God's people, our greatest desire should be to reflect that glory it also says he had a face as lightning that is a great brilliance of light beaming from his face and on the mount of transfiguration Matthew seventeen two says and Jesus was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun as the sun you see, Jesus is the light that lightens our paths with knowledge and with truth that we may have everlasting life. Psalm 36, 9 speaks of the, of the Lord, In thy light shall we see light. All knowledge and all wisdom dwells. All knowledge and wisdom dwell in Christ. Colossians 2 3, in whom that is in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It flows from him. He doesn't have to work at showing forth truth and knowledge. He is all truth and knowledge. And how foolish for us, therefore to think that we can find knowledge and truth outside of Jesus Christ. That we can find knowledge and truth that is going to lead to everlasting life outside of Jesus Christ. His eyes were as lamps of fire that is it speaks his eyes speak of what he sees he sees everything he sees all he penetrates with those eyes of fire into the innermost part of our being you know that omniscience and all knowledge of that Jesus has that's the greatest fear for unbelievers the fact that... Jesus knows all things they do not want a Jesus who knows all things, who penetrates to the innermost part of their being it scares them to death that Jesus knows all things but dear ones listen to me closely the fact that Jesus has eyes like lamps of fire is a great comfort to us who believe In Jesus Christ, because he who knows me best loves me most. There's nothing in me that he doesn't know, and yet he has set his everlasting love upon me. He knows the very worst about me, and yet he went to the cross to die that I might live and that all who trust in him might live. His knowledge, therefore, of me is not a great fear that shakes me and causes me to tremble, but it's a great comfort to me because he who knows me best understands me, understands me and knows me. When I... No one else understands me. When everybody else misinterprets what I do, Jesus knows. He knows what's in my heart. That's a great comfort to us as believers. It also says in the vision that he had arms and feet like polished brass, brass. Dear ones, Jesus does not have arms and feet of wax, of clay, or even of wood. Rather, he has feet and arms, that are mighty, that are omnipotent and all powerful like polished brass in order to bring salvation to us, his people, and in order to help us in all of the trials and afflictions that we find and that come our way in this life, and to even crush all his and our enemies. He has arms and feet like polished brass. Remember that. He's not impotent. He's omnipotent. And he has a voice like a multitude. That is, Jesus speaks not with the voice, a whisper of one, But he speaks with the voice of a multitude, with a loud, authoritative voice of many in unison. In other words, the voice of Jesus Christ and his commands, his ordinances, his institutions, his promises that he has made are all spoken with absolute authority. There is no higher authority. All authority, Jesus says, has been given unto him in heaven and in earth. There is no higher authority. So how foolish again for people to rebel against him, against Jesus, who speaks with supreme authority, and before whom all will stand in judgment before him as an authoritative, supremely authoritative judge. Finally, thirdly, Daniel's reaction to this vision in verses 7 through 9. First, we see the reaction of those who were with Daniel. As I said, I believe probably bodyguards, an escort of some kind uh, that were there. He was still, even if he was not in office, serving in some civil capacity he was yet an honored man Um, having served uh, in Babylon and in Persia to kings and being uh, uh, even next in command to the king though Daniel alone saw the vision those with him fled in fear why? it says Daniel was the only one who saw the vision why did they flee in fear? Um, some have supposed that they heard um, uh, they didn't see but they heard but the vision uh, was both seeing and hearing Um, I, I would suggest that they fled because they saw Daniel's reaction not because they either heard or saw anything in the vision but because they saw the reaction of Daniel to the vision and when they saw Daniel react the way he did they fled in fear But look at Daniel's reaction. Upon seeing this vision of the exalted, glorious Christ, and upon hearing the supreme voice of his authority, Daniel, who is beloved of the Lord, who is highly honored among men for his faithfulness to the Lord, becomes so bodily weak that he cannot even stand, but collapses unconscious to the ground. Very much like John, when the vision of the Lord Jesus to John, it says he fell down as one dead. So likewise, Daniel here falls down unconscious uh, in deep sleep, it says. Now, we might well reason at this point, well, of course, Daniel reacted in this way before such an amazing revelation of Jesus Christ. And someone may say, well, so would I. I would react in a similar way if I had that kind of a revelation or a vision of Jesus Christ. But I ask you, dear ones, have you not been given even a more glorious revelation of Jesus Christ in his word than Daniel received in a vision? Have you not been given more knowledge of jesus christ in the new testament scriptures than daniel had by way of knowledge from that particular image and that vision of christ it's very easy to say i would have done this i would have felt the same way as daniel if a vision appeared to me but what are we doing are we taking seriously the vision or the revelation that God has given to us of Jesus Christ and his word? How do we handle that? Do we daily, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, do we daily seek to behold the glory of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king? Because when we do, and as we do, it will change our day. It will change the way we face circumstances and trials and the way we receive blessings when we behold the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. All that was represented in the vision of Christ was fully realized in the incarnation, the life, the miracles of Christ. In his teaching, in his obedience, in his love, in his grace, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his enthronement at the right hand of God the Father. And all of that is revealed in the New Testament scriptures. May God help us every day to live, to breathe, to learn, to love, and to obey out of awe and wonder, our Lord Jesus Christ. They're ones that will change our lives. I guarantee it. It will change our lives and it will give us a hope every single day. Regardless of what comes our way, we will have hope when we have that understanding and we, we behold by faith the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it becomes real in our personal communion, not as a stranger to us, but as one who appears unto us daily if we will simply behold him in all of his glory by faith. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank thee, for thy word and the revelation of Jesus Christ in it. We confess, Lord, we have not appreciated, been thankful, availed ourselves as we ought of the glory of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And therefore, we suffer so much uh, by way of hopelessness and despair and discouragement in our lives because Jesus in all of his glory is not before us and before our eyes by faith we pray father help us understand this is this is not something that is hidden in thy word this is something that is revealed in thy word this is something that thou has taught us and yet we so often go blindly on in our, in our everyday life God help us to see forgive us and draw us unto Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.